You know what Peter's saying? He's saying, you want an experience with Christ, you have the prophetic word in the scriptures more fully confirmed than what I experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. What you read in the Holy Scriptures, you can trust more than my experience that I know I experience. The objective Word of the living God. You want to hear the voice of the Father? You want to come into fellowship with Christ? You do that every time you crack a Bible open. The voice of the Father speaks. Christ fellowships with us. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, this morning I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 9 again. Mark chapter 9. This morning we want to look together at verses 2 through 8, the title of the message, The Bright Light of the Sun. The Bright Light of the Sun. And I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll begin reading in verse 2, and I'll read through verse 8. Then we'll pray, and then we'll study God's Word together. Now hear God's Word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. He led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. This is the pure and undulterated word of the living God. Please be seated and let's ask him for his help. Our Father, what a glorious passage we have before us a passage that in many ways renders us speechless, but it is our duty to study it this morning. We pray that the light of truth would penetrate our souls as we consider together the bright light of the Son of God and our Savior that you sent into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. We pray these things in his holy and blessed name. Amen. As we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, we have followed the life of our Lord, and as we continue to do that, we are coming increasingly closer to his crucifixion. It was toward the end of Jesus' life that he went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a wonderful feast that pilgrims 
from all around traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate. On the last night of this event, there was a ceremony that celebrated Israel's exodus from Egypt in sort of a flamboyant way. Four huge candelabra surrounded the temple grounds, candelabra that reached as high as the highest temple walls. At the top of these candelabra were containers that contained 65 liters of oil. And ladders were attached to these candelabra in which priests on this night would climb to the top and light the wick so that a flaming torch was lit, four flaming torches, gigantic flames that hurled vertically into the night sky, illuminating not just the temple grounds but also the whole city of Jerusalem. The Mishnah tells us that there was singing and dancing as the Levites played their instruments and people ran around with torches in their hands harps and lyres and cymbals and trumpets played. This event, of course, celebrated that great pillar of fire, the glorious cloud of God's presence that led the Israelites in their wilderness wandering. But it was the following morning in the temple treasury. The torches charred, the smell of smoke still in the air lingering, that Jesus lifted his voice above the crowd and said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. In effect, Christ was saying that he didn't merely signify those torches that had been lit the night before, but that he was the fulfillment of that pillar of fire at night that led Israel through the wilderness. He was the one guiding them in their wilderness wandering. It was his presence that was with them. And that same glory that was in the sky had now come to earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in their midst. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus himself would also undergo an exodus. The children of Israel celebrated their exodus from Egypt, but Jesus would undergo his own exodus, his departure to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of cruel men in order to deliver sinners out of their bondage to sin. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus tabernacled among us. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Skenao, tabernacled among us, the light of the world. You need to have that imagery in your mind as we look at this glorious passage of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a revelation of Jesus' divine nature telling us one central truth, and that is that God came to make his dwelling place among man. By virtue of his death, his resurrection, and his glorification, God comes to us through the person of Christ. Revelation 21.3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be their God. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the pure, unadulterated revelation of God's glory. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.8. He referred to Christ as the Lord of glory. 
2 Corinthians 4, 6, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 3 says that Christ is the radiance of God's glory. And James 2, 1 says that Jesus is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality was that in his humanity, that glory was hidden. That divinity was veiled. In fact, you wouldn't even know that Jesus was from God and was God apart from perhaps the miracles that he performed. Such was the realness of his humanity. We saw Peter's great confession that Jesus was the Christ in Mark's gospel. The fuller confession of that was recorded by Matthew that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God, an affirmation of divine sonship, an affirmation of deity. After Peter made that confession, Jesus made his prediction that he would suffer, and we saw Peter rebuke Jesus, essentially telling him, you shouldn't suffer, and then we see Jesus rebuking people Peter saying, yes, I will suffer because Christ would be glorified, but he must suffer first. Why was this? This was the testimony of the prophets. Mark that. This was the testimony of the prophets. Luke 24, Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Glory does not come, says the prophets, apart from suffering. Peter understood that if Christ was going to suffer, that the apostles would also suffer. And that is true. Paul would later say in Romans 8, 17, if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. There is a pattern to the life of Christ that should match the pattern of every true Christian. Glory does not come apart from suffering. Remember, Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken about me, about my suffering, and then about my glory. Before entering the glory of heaven, Christians too must suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. We saw that last week. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and Peter even says in 1 Peter 4 13 rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glorified when his glory is revealed well that glory was revealed to Peter temporarily on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus Christ would suffer before he was glorified, and Christians too must suffer before they are glorified. This is part and parcel the message of the gospel. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body our lowly body, to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
our glory is coming, but it must wait. Jesus rebuked Peter and said, I will suffer. And now in the transfiguration, we see the Father's voice from heaven itself rebuking Peter. Notice with me, verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them, a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In other words, you've not been listening to him, but you must listen to him. Apart from suffering, there can come no glory. And the disciples would, even after this unbelievable experience, need to be reminded of this very thing. In Luke chapter 18, Taking the twelve, he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The prophets. For it will be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. On the third day, he'll rise again. But they understood none of these things. How could they not understand these things? Not because intellectually they couldn't understand it. That was only part of the equation. It was that spiritually they didn't want to accept a suffering Savior. It was unthinkable to them. And it wasn't until after his resurrection that the disciples fully embraced the significance of Christ's suffering on the cross. They testified to the preview of Christ's glory that they saw in the transfiguration when they wrote to the church. You are familiar with Peter's words. He, he writes about this experience later. And he says, uh, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we know do the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw his majestic glory. We heard, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven on that holy mountain. It was John who gave testimony to this event of the transfiguration in his famous verse in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That was a clear nod to the glory they saw in the transfiguration. Why does Mark write about this transfiguration? We're going to look at it. But why does Mark write about it? He writes about it because he wants us to understand that Christ must suffer. He must suffer death upon the cross before he could be resurrected. Here appears to him two men, Elijah and Moses, who are in resurrected bodies as a sign that he too would be resurrected, but he must first suffer. All of this was to serve as an encouragement to the disciples and an encouragement to us the consummated kingdom will come, Christ will return again, and in that sense, the transfiguration is a preview of that return of Christ, but more than that, the transfiguration is a preview of what immediately comes after this event, and that is the crucifixion of Christ, his resurrection, and his ascension. After all, that is exactly what the prophets foretold. Skip down to verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, listen to this, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. That was the most immediate event of glory that the transfiguration pointed to. The resurrection 
of Christ. And you remember after the resurrection of Christ and that glory, there was more glory to follow. When he had said these things, Luke records in Acts, they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Another moment of glory with another cloud. And while they're gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. Transfiguration was therefore a preview of the glory of Christ's resurrection, the glory of his ascension, and the glory of his second coming all wrapped up into one as a comfort to us to remind us, yes, there will be suffering in this life. There is a cross we must bear. We must count our life as loss for the sake of Christ. But Christ's kingdom has been established through his resurrection, through his ascension, and he is coming again to consummate his kingdom. He is coming again and all eyes will see his resurrected glory. So we can say with Paul, old death, where is your victory? Old death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The transfiguration was a preview of the victory to come. And in this transfiguration, you need to understand This is really the the high watermark of Mark's gospel. This is the climax. This is not where you turn your ears off. This is where you open your ears and open your heart and pay attention to one of the most glorious events that ever occurred in the history of the world. Maybe aside from the resurrection and the ascension and the incarnation, this was the most glorious event. We have displayed in the transfiguration the glorious brilliance of Christ's divine nature blazing through the veil of his humanity. A unique one-time event experienced only by Peter, James, and John. An event that can be tracked by following the three parts of Mark's narrative. First of all, we want to look at where they went. Secondly, we want to look at what they saw. And third, We want to look at who they heard. Notice with me, first of all, where they went. Verse 2. Where did they go? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. He led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now notice the transfiguration occurred after six days. After six days of Peter's confession, Luke in his account says it occurred eight days later, but eight days is counting uh, from Luke's standpoint the day of the confession and the day of the transfiguration. So Mark is accurate when he says six days. Mark wants to clue us in on two things. First of all, the number six is important. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John And secondly, that he led them up a high mountain. Mountains are important in Scripture. And a particular mountain is of extreme importance. In Exodus chapter 24, we read that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it with the presence of God. Exodus 24 also indicates that Moses was on that mountain for six days overshadowed by the glory presence 
of the cloud of God. Mark is cluing us in to the Exodus event. He's cluing us in to the event on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Which is why he says after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Peter, James, and John were only taken by themselves. They were part of the inner circle of the apostles, as we've noted in times past. But perhaps more importantly, the law of God in Deuteronomy 17 required two or three witnesses for a truth to be confirmed. These apostles would be the witnesses to verify what happened on the mountain, to tell the other apostles, and then to tell the church. So there on this high mountain, they together witnessed, as the text says, by themselves, apart from the other disciples, Jesus, as verse 2 says, transfigured before them. Now, we'll go back and look at what the word transfigured means a little later on, but what I want you to see here is that this was a high mountain. Where did this occur? Tradition says it occurred on Mount Tabor. Uh, But this mountain was not a high mountain. It only rose 2,000 feet in elevation. It was far from Caesarea Philippi where Peter made his confession. And perhaps more to the point, Mount Tabor or Mount Tabor was inhabited by a community of people. This was a secluded event that only Peter, James, and John, and then obviously Moses and Elijah saw. It's more than likely that it occurs on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in the area of Caesarea Philippi, rising some 9,000 feet, actually over 9,000 feet. On this high mountain is where this transfiguration occurred. And where the transfiguration occurred is important. It's important to highlight that it happened on a high mountain, as we're going to see in a moment. But let me just tell you here briefly that mountains figured prominently in the Old Testament and in Jesus' ministry. Luke tells us that Jesus scaled this mountain with Peter, James, and John to pray. And Jesus often went on the mountain to pray. We saw that in Mark chapter 6. On the mountains is where Jesus often preached. For example, he preached the Sermon on the Mount. On mountains is where Jesus performed miracles. We see that in Matthew 15. People gathered around him and he healed people. Jesus was tempted on a mountain, Matthew chapter 4. In Mark chapter 3, we saw that Jesus called his disciples from a mountain. In Matthew 28, he sends the disciples on mission from a mountain. Jesus was crucified on a mountain, namely Mount Calvary. Most significantly, however, it was God that revealed himself to Moses in a special way. Revealing his glory to Moses. We read it earlier, Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And we saw in that passage that so brilliant was the light that Moses saw from the backside of God that his face shone as he came down from the mountain and the people were so afraid of the light that they saw that they wouldn't come near Moses unless he put a veil over his face. Exodus 34 says, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come down. This was merely the afterglow on his face, so bright, so dazzling, that it terrified the people of God. 
Little did these three apostles know as they're going up on this mountain that they are going to experience something more significant than even Moses experienced in the Old Testament. This would have been absolutely unthinkable. Where they went is important because on mountains is where God often revealed himself to his people. And this is going to be the greatest revealing of God ever in the history of the world. And only three people are going to witness it along with Moses and Elijah. So we move, number one, from where they went. Now to verses three and three through six, what they saw. And what they saw is absolutely staggering. Verse 3 says that his clothes, that is the clothes of Christ, became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And not only that, but there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now the end of verse 2 described Jesus, notice it, as being transfigured before them. And I told you we were going to come back to this term. Metamorpho is the Greek word. Of course, you can guess it. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. It occurs only four times in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, it speaks about the transforming of our minds. Um, In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it speaks about um, the transforming of our our souls uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit being conformed to the image of Christ. And I'll confess to you this morning that um, I didn't pay a lick of attention in science class. I could care less. But I paid attention enough to understand this, that when a caterpillar became a butterfly or a tadpole became a frog, they were not changing in their nature. They were simply changing in their form. A metamorphosis was taking place, a change in form. And the transfiguration or the transformation that Jesus underwent, please understand, was not a change of nature. His glorious nature was always there, hidden under the veil of his flesh. But this was a change of appearance for the sake of the disciples. And I can't emphasize that enough. I do not have words this morning to explain to you the significance of what occurred. In fact, Mark doesn't even try. Notice verse 2, he simply says he was transfigured before them. He doesn't even know how to explain this. It is such a monumental, supernatural, unbelievable experience. What does it mean? Well, in a moment's notice, Jesus was transformed so that the glory that lay hidden and the recesses of his spirit and his soul under his skin that had been concealed under the cloak of his humanity at once burst forth, revealing to the disciples, listen to this, his full deity. His full deity. Luke 9.32 says, the disciples were dozing off, probably while Jesus was praying, but they are awakened by this light that is described in verses 3 and 4. Their dozing slumber gave way to the dazzling sun of light appearing before them. Matthew says, his face shone like the sun. 
And if you notice there in verse 3, Mark says his clothes became radiant, intensely white. Luke says that they became white and gleaming. The blazing bright light of the Son of God was like the sun of the sky on a blinding summer day in Florida. That's the image that you need to get times a thousand. Uh, The glorious light breaking forth from Christ that was hidden in the veil of his humanity came shooting forth like beams of the sun from his body, from his skin. The purest of bright light, more intense than the sun itself. And Mark is at a loss of words. The rest of verse 3 describes its whiteness. His clothes were so white, notice verse 3, that no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, there was never in the history of the world a whiter white, a brighter light. In fact, Peter later describes it in 2 Peter 1, that Jesus' appearance was majestic and glorious. And John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed to the Father that the Father would restore to him the glory that was his from all of eternity after his death on the cross. Well, it wasn't because he ever lost his glory. He didn't give up his deity when he came to earth. His deity was veiled. But in this event, Listen to this, his glory was restored momentarily only to then be taken away through the darkness of the cross again. And this glory that was momentarily revealed to Peter, James, and John, catch this, was a confirming sign to the disciples that he was exactly who Peter just confessed he was, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And make no mistake about it, They would have put two and two together. This was the very Shekinah glory of God. The pillar of fire that they read about in the Old Testament, uh, the pillar of fire that the priests would teach the people about, was in their presence now. On a different mountain, they saw the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus, the light of the world, was bringing God to man in Christ, dwelling there on this mountain with Peter, James, and John. And let me just say this, when Moses was on the mountain, when Moses saw the backside of God's glory, it was only his face that shone from the reflected light of God, that was enough to terrify the people of God. This is not reflected light of God. This is the very light of God. Jesus is the radiance of God's light. This is the light of God blinding Peter, James, and John. It's amazing. That's why John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father full of grace and truth. But it's not just what they see in this light that confirms Peter's confession that he's the Son of God. It's also who shows up. Notice verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with 
Imagine this, Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now this is staggering. Elijah and Moses, who had already died, who possessed glorified spirits, are temporarily, for the sake of the disciples, eyewitnesses to glorified bodies given to Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah are not spirits. They're in glorified bodies. I mean, the disciples are sleeping. They awake to the dazzling brightness of this light. And these figures, it says, appeared to them. And they're talking with Jesus. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 9 because Luke tells us why or what they were talking about. What was the, t- the topic of conversation? Wouldn't you like to know? Well, Luke tells us. Verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. This is Luke's account. Verse 31, Who appeared in glory, and w- listen to this, spoke of his departure. So Moses and Elijah are also appearing in their glory of their resurrected bodies. The full deity of Christ's glory is on display and they're speaking of his departure. What does that have to do with? Well, it's the Greek word exodon. It's where we get the word exodus. Notice the end of verse 31, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're speaking about his suffering. They're speaking about his crucifixion. They're speaking about His death upon the cross. Now it makes sense why Jesus wants two or three witnesses to go with him up on the mountain because no one is going to believe what they have just seen. But Jesus also wants a couple of witnesses from the Old Testament to confirm that what they are seeing and what they are going to hear is the word of God. That it is of divine necessity that Jesus suffer upon the cross, that he go to Jerusalem, that he be arrested, that he be tried unlawfully, that he be whipped, that he be mocked, that he be crucified. Because he cannot rise from the grave. He cannot experience that glory apart from suffering. And this conversation must have lasted some time. Again, Mark is brief in this because it says there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. But again, I I can't emphasize enough that this was no mere vision. Uh, The word appeared there speaks about later in the Bible the appearance of angels or, or the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection when he clearly had a body. This is, listen to this, no hallucination. This is a revelation. Uh, This is not a dream. This is reality. Uh, The ones that they had read about and heard about in the Old Testament, these great figures of the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest figures of the Old Testament, are standing before them talking to Jesus with the bright light shining around them. And I love this. They're engaged with Jesus in a conversation as if they know him. Because guess what? They did know him. And they had died centuries before and had been taken 
into heaven, into the presence of the second person of the Trinity, having fellowship with the second person of the Trinity, but it had been quite some time since they had interacted since Jesus' incarnation. And here they are conversing, speaking with Jesus, catching up just like old friends. I love Exodus 33.11 because it speaks about Moses before the glory of God And it says, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And I want to encourage you this morning, what a glorious experience heaven will be like. This is a preview of what it will be like. You want to know what it will be like to be in Jesus' presence? You will walk with Jesus. You will talk with Jesus. You will have fellowship with him to his face. And right now, why would you wait to have that fellowship? The Bible has ordained prayer as the means by which we can come into his presence and speak to him. And I encourage you to talk with him now through prayer so that he won't seem unfamiliar to you when you die and go to heaven. Moses and Elijah conversing with Jesus. And can you imagine the disciples basking in this glory listening to this deep theological conversation, beginning to connect the dots that Moses and Elijah have something to say about Jesus' crucifixion, that Jesus understands that Elijah and Moses, everything that they foretold in their prophecies, everything they foreshadowed in their actions ultimately found their culmination in him. And that Moses and Elijah understand that Jesus is central to the storyline of the Bible. That Christ is central to our understanding of not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Not just the law, but the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the apocalyptic portions. That's what would have been going on in this conversation. And and they would have known they're on a mountain And Moses was on a mountain. They are seeing the glory of God. Moses saw the glory of God. They would have understood they are standing on holy ground before these great prophets of God. These men, Moses, who found Israel and called the people out of their Egyptian bondage and formed the people of God, legislated them, giving them the laws... Elijah, another great prophet deliverer, reforming the nation, speaking true prophecies, defeating the false prophets of Baal on another mountain, Mount Carmel. They represented, Elijah and Moses, the entire Old Testament economy. In two people, they represented all that the Old Testament taught. And no doubt the talks on this spiritual summit involved how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those covenants and he was going to enact a new covenant, but he could not do that apart from the blood that would be shed. The blood of the new covenant. A new exodus delivering his people from sin. And if you stop and just think for a moment, the parallels are staggering. Israel was delivered from Egypt. We are delivered from sin. Egypt was delivered from Pharaoh. 
We are delivered from Satan. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus wandered in the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days to secure our salvation, to deliver us from death, to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from Satan and ultimately hell. And perhaps this conversation is only paralleled by another account in which Jesus appears to the disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24. You remember, he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then we read this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And what did they say? Well, they say in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Because to open the scriptures of them was to open how everything in the Bible points to Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of the covenants. He is the one in whom the entire universe revolves around. And here on this mountain, these apostles are privy to the full deity of Christ, the full exposure of God and full revelation confirmed by Elijah and Moses. Some say that Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the rest of the prophets. But there's more than that. You remember that Moses indeed gave the law, but he himself was also a prophet, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Not only that, but he led Israel out of their exodus from Egypt. Elijah was also a prophet deliverer, as I mentioned earlier, 1 Kings 17 and 18. He he delivered them from Baal, calling fire down from heaven upon those false prophets. So these men represent the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Their individual lives exemplified the fact they were prophet deliverers. They spoke the truth and the truth set God's people free. And who is Jesus? He speaks the truth and lives the truth and he sets his people free. Peter later remarks about the transfiguration. As an eyewitness in Acts chapter 10, Peter says to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name alone. Peter was Mark's eyewitness to this event. Peter would have explained to Mark, these prophets represent Everything the Old Testament spoke concerning Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And Malachi chapter 4 is important as well. Malachi chapter 4 tells Israel to remember the instruction, literally in the Hebrew, the Torah of God's servant Moses, before then mentioning Elijah as the prophet who will turn the hearts of the people to repentance. The last prophecy of the Old Testament says there's a prophet greater than Moses that is coming. And before he comes, there's a prophet, Elijah, who's John the Baptist, who's going to be his forerunner. 
In fact, turn with me back, not to Malachi, but to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because in Malachi 4, Deuteronomy 18 is referenced, but Deuteronomy 18 is where that prophecy really comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And notice with me verse 15, this is the words of Moses, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And Moses says, it is to him you shall listen. He's talking about Christ. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the, that, uh, know the word that the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid. This is all about prophets. It's all about prophecy. Elijah and Moses, prophet delivers. Jesus, the final prophet who has come to deliver his people. So for the apostles to have these giants of the faith, Moses and Elijah, come and talk to Jesus about how all of the scriptures pointed to him and how Jesus must suffer and he must die, he must go to Jerusalem, would have confirmed and solidified his divine sonship. They heard this conversation. But verse 5 tells us that Peter is inclined to think that it's his turn to speak. So notice your Bibles, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I mean, he's basking in the glory, isn't he? It's good that we are here. He doesn't want to leave. Matthew says that he calls him Lord. Luke says he calls him Master. Mark says he calls him Rabbi. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. What follower of Christ wouldn't say that? It's likely that this was a triple request. He asked him three times. Lord, It's good to be here. Let's make these three tents. Master, it's good to be here. Let's make these three tents. Rabbi, it's good to be here. Let's make these three tents. This was a persistent request. Peter did not know when to keep his mouth quiet. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love how Mark sort of comes to Peter's defense. He says in verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I mean, cut him a break. (laughs) He didn't know what to say. You wouldn't know what to say. Under such terrifying circumstances, uh, it's probably best not to say anything, much less suggest something. That's exactly what Peter does. He just can't help himself. What in the world is behind this? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Well, the word for tents there could be translated as booths or tabernacles. 
They were thatched huts that the children of Israel lived in during their wilderness wanderings. And then later, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they temporarily lived in those outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. There in sort of the suburbs of Jerusalem, they would camp out in these tents celebrating as a memorial their deliverance from Egypt. In fact, uh, in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, we read about this. And uh, there are a couple of interesting verses you might be interested in in Leviticus chapter 23. Verse 42, God commanded them to live in these tents, these booths, during the feast. He says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. Who was it that said, you need to set up tents? It was Moses. Was Peter trying to impress Moses by saying, let us make three tents? A sort of memorial. I think he had the Feast of Tabernacles on his mind. I think he wanted a prolonged memorial, an extended conference of sorts with Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Some suggest, and they may be right, that he was stalling, hoping the kingdom could be set up apart from suffering. If he could keep them up there long enough, maybe the cross could be avoided. Maybe he could convince Christ, you don't have to suffer. Listen, we're in the glory now. Let's just stay here. Set up your kingdom now. But this was no time to commemorate. What was there to commemorate? Christ hadn't died on the cross. Jesus would later establish the Lord's Supper as a memorial, as a commemoration of his suffering to atone for the sins of his people, but not now. This is not a time to set up tents. This is not a time for a memorial. This is not a time for a conference. There is work that must be done. Suffering must come before glory. And so Peter, even after being rebuked by Jesus, still wants Jesus to avoid this suffering. Let's just stay in these tents. Maybe it was even, okay, I accept that you have to suffer. Can we stay in these tents a little longer before that suffering? Well, Peter did not get the response he wanted because we move from where they went, high on the mountain, verse two, and what they saw Jesus transfigured before them with Elijah and Moses speaking with Jesus Very quickly after Peter made the request, notice who they heard, where they went, what they saw, who they heard. And let me just say this, we see it in verses 7 and 8, where they went was important and what they saw was double important, but who they heard was triple important. I mean, the climax of this thing just keeps rising. And what they are about to experience is going to terrify them. Verse 7 says, And a cloud overshadowed them. I mean, Luke 9.34 says they were fearful because they actually entered into the cloud. They are being overshadowed by the glory cloud of God's presence. They knew what this meant. This is what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai. 
The glory cloud was the form in which God presented himself to Israel. The pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It was the cloud that overshadowed Moses in the cleft of the rock. It was the cloud that covered the tent of meeting. It was the cloud that later filled the temple of Solomon. Notice your Bibles carefully. Verse 7 says, it overshadowed them. Episcaadzo. Episcaadzo. Overshadowed. Literally means enveloped. And it's hard to imagine what this experience was like. But there are similar experiences to this. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 1 for a moment. Luke chapter 1. Same word is used here. Speaking to Mary, the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High, here it is again, will overshadow you envelop you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. This happened to Mary. This cloud symbolized God's presence. His announcement to Mary through the angel Gabriel that in her, God would dwell. It wasn't just that Christ was conceived in a human womb. It's that he would dwell in human hearts. Christ would envelop his people. Christ would come to have fellowship with his people. That's what's being conveyed here. Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John are all in Christ, in Christ, in this overshadowing, this enveloping of his presence. And in the midst of that, back in Mark 8, Mark Mark 9, a voice came out of the cloud, verse 7, and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now Peter, of course, had not listened to him, Because Peter tried to prevent him from going to Jerusalem, the departure, the exodus. But now, a voice from heaven rebukes Peter. This is the voice of the Father. This is the same voice, by the way, at Jesus' baptism. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. That was... uh, a confirmation to Jesus that he approved of his mission, that he was the Son of God. This voice from heaven is an encouragement to the disciples to approve the mission of Jesus. He must suffer. You must listen to him. He said he must depart. He must go to Jerusalem. You must listen to him. What did Moses say? There is coming a prophet after me who is greater than me. You must listen to him. This is a rebuke from the Father. 
a rebuke from the Father that there is no greater authority than the Son. If He says He must suffer the cross, He must suffer the cross. In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world, the radiance of the glory of God. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us through Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory, the bright light of that glory. The final prophet, as John says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we know that Elijah and Moses were ushered away into heaven. I am convinced that if Moses wasn't ushered away, he would have quoted himself from Deuteronomy 18. Listen to him. That's essentially what the father does. He repeats the inspired Deuteronomy text. Listen to him. The Shekinah glory of God overshadowing, enveloping the disciples. Listen to him. The Shekinah glory of God hadn't been seen in 600 years. Here it is, enveloping them. Symbolizing with its history, God's presence, the glory cloud. With what the Father said, listen to him. This very fact that apart from Christ going to Jerusalem and suffering, there can be no fellowship with Christ. There can't be what we're having on this mountain. This face-to-face fellowship, this face-to-face glory with the presence of God enveloping and overshadowing us, this cannot happen apart from the cross. Jesus is the tabernacle and temple in whom... We fellowship with God's people. That can't happen apart from the cross. That's what the Father is conveying. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And this is pressed home, verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It's precisely what the Father was conveying all along, wasn't it? All you need is Jesus only. You don't need to set up three memorials. Moses didn't secure salvation. Elijah didn't secure salvation. They were prophet deliverers as um, prototypes of the fulfillment who is Christ, the final prophet and deliverer who atoned for the sins of his people. No more Elijah, no more Moses, Jesus only. That's all that was left with them. Again, going back, Going back to John 1.14, John's words, I think he's referencing the fact that Jesus only was with them when he says the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. There's only one son from the father that can secure redemption for his people. And that only comes through the suffering of the cross. Here, Jesus' glory shone like the sun as deity burst forth radiant beams from his humanity that veiled it. He brings with him the Shekinah glory of God's presence and overshadows the disciples, which speaks to us about the doctrine of our union with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit filled with his loving presence, his securing goodness. But that only comes through Christ. It only comes 
through his suffering. The glory that you have in your fellowship with Christ only comes through his suffering. Without that, there is no hope. Now in closing, I know we've been here a long time. I'd scream too if I was here that long. I just want to give you three takeaways that I think need to be pressed home. Because um, I don't want to return to this text next week. I want to get through it all. Number one, I want you to understand this morning, you have been brought face to face with Christ. Exodus thirty-three eleven says that the Lord would speak to Moses as a man speaks to a friend. The Bible says that Jesus is our brother. Is he your savior? Yes. Is he judge? Is he Lord? Yes. But he's also a friend. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Moses saw the backside of God's glory. Peter, James, and John saw the actual light of God's glory. But we too have seen the glory of Christ. It's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You know it well. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. We will be enveloped and overshadowed in the very presence and fellowship of Christ. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving. Paul says. And then back in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the very image of God. He's a brother, he is a friend. He's one that you can confide in. He's one that you can pray to. He's one that you can lean on. He's one that you can trust in. In your deepest, darkest valley, he is the light that you are to look to and cling to. Transfiguration teaches that to us. Secondly, let me just say this. The Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament, and the New Testament helps us understand the Old Testament. Did you notice in this text that... um, Peter's focus was on Elijah and Moses, the Israelites, and not on Jesus, the true Israelite, the one who obeyed perfectly. Uh, Moses wanted that glory for himself and the other Israelite disciples, James and John. He didn't want that glory for the world. Your hermeneutic Your interpretation of Scripture needs to be focused on a person, not a people. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the people of Israel. It's amazing to me that it's just so natural for Jesus and Elijah and Moses to talk about how everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. They had no problem seeing that Christ is on every page of Scripture and every story of Scripture. He's what everything pointed forward to. And if you have trouble understanding a Christ-centered 
interpretation of Scripture, be encouraged because the disciples had a hard time grasping that as well. But they eventually did after the resurrection. Number three, you should uh, desire a type of experience like this. A type of experience like the transfiguration. But it won't be exactly like that. As we close, I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the text I, I quoted earlier. This is Peter now later reflecting upon the transfiguration. And this is absolutely staggering. You would think that he would write about what happened on that mountain. Not really. He says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's referring to the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now if you stop reading your Bibles right there, you might say to yourself, man, I want an experience like that. Give me a dream, give me a vision, give me something I can taste, see, smell, touch. I want to know the presence of Christ. I want to know the glory that was experienced on that mountain. Give it to me, God. And God says, you won't get it apart from the word. Notice verse 19. And Peter says, we have the prophetic word more firmly, fully confirmed. To which you do well to pay attention as do a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know what Peter's saying? He's saying you want an experience with Christ, you have the prophetic word in the Scriptures more fully confirmed than what I experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. What you read in the Holy Scriptures, you can trust more than my experience that I know I experience. The objective word of the living God. You want to hear the voice of the Father? You want to come into fellowship with Christ? You do that every time you crack a Bible open. The voice of the Father speaks. Christ fellowships with us. Sutola Legay, take up and read. Read the Word. Study the Word. That is the experience by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that is a more fully confirmed, sure word of prophecy than even a true experience that happened. This is why Paul speaks about Moses and he says, we have such a hope, we're very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being...
from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We behold the glory of the Lord and are transformed from one glory to another through our study of Scripture. By the, word, the, by the way, the word transformed is the word for transfigured. We are changed. We are changed into the very image of Christ as we see Christ in the light of his word. Don't uh, desire some dream, some vision, some experience. You don't need that. Paul experienced that and he refused to talk about it. Peter experienced it and said, as true as that was, the word of God is more firm. Church today needs the objective word of God preached. You need the objective word of God in your life to comfort you, to come in fellowship with Christ, to be strengthened, to be assured of the promises of God as the Shekinah glory of God through Christ and the Holy Spirit envelops you and overshadows you with the truth of God. So as glorious as the incarnation or the transfiguration is, we all experience the light of of God's glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. I I hope this morning you've experienced that. Because whether or not you know Christ will determine where you spend eternity. Uh, Whether or not you have come to Christ confessing your sins, repenting of your sins, trusting in Him as the one that must suffer in your place will determine whether or not you enter the presence of God's glory. It is the greatest experience you can ever have, and you can have it today. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, that person will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for these scriptures. Lord, so much truth given to us Such a brief account written by Mark, but yet such depth, unable to really uncover all of it, but hopefully enough that we have been brought face to face with the light of your truth. Lord, and where the apostles went and what they saw and who they heard, through Christ we have been brought to Mount Calvary. Through Christ we've been enveloped by the Holy Spirit. Through Christ... We behold your glory through Christ. We are accepted and embraced and forgiven. Through Christ, we have fellowship with you, our Father, through the gospel. We are so grateful for that. We're grateful that the transfiguration was an experience that pointed forward to what all Christians experience through the gospel. Our prayer is that if there are any here today that don't know Christ, that you would turn their hearts to Christ and to the glory that belongs to all your true people through faith and repentance. Comfort us with these words. Father, help us to know that your word is a sure prophetic word. Use what we spoke about this morning to transform us to the very Lord of glory, to his image. Lord, until the day that he returns, we pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. 
Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.